Okay, everybody, uh, welcome to uh, our Mindhunter podcast. And here we are finally at episode 10 of season one, again, of our Mindhunter companion podcast. Uh, Peter, welcome. Welcome, Doug. Uh, Thank you. Uh, So here we are. We've arrived uh, at the end of season 10. Uh, Another episode directed by uh, David Fincher. This is written by Joe Penhall uh, and Jennifer Haley based on a story by Joe Penhall. And uh, I think we're continuing our downward arc for Holden and Company. Yeah, so this is, right, this is the wrap-up of season one. And this came out in October 2017. That's when they released the first, the whole first season. Right, and then there's essentially a two-year gap in production. Yeah, yeah, I think, and and we'll we'll talk about that. Um, you know when we uh, when we start uh, our season two series, but um, yeah, so uh, I mean, this the way this wraps up. Clearly, they were intending to do more episodes. Um, it's certainly not uh, left um, with you know. A, a, closure at all um everything's sort of left open at the end of the episode uh so they clearly were expecting to come back but it took yeah, a while. i don't know is that true i mean or it makes you wonder did they leave it as a a cliffhanger to a, to maybe entice netflix to do it i mean I, i've i've read stuff that fincher has said he wants it to go five seasons yeah i mean that it's, would be unusual for netflix yeah, I I guess there are successful shows that go that long, but I think it's more common to do three or four. For most, well, I have a lot of rules, series. and one of my rules is I always kind of feel like no TV show is really good after the third season. So we'll see. We'll Except see. The Simpsons, right? Well, that's the exception that proves the rule. <laughs> <laughs> that kind of got good in the third season. You know, no movie series is really good after the third movie. <laughs> or the first movie. <laughs> well, Terminator 2. Terminator yeah. 2 and Star Trek 2. Uh, yeah, I guess. <laughs> All right, I, I still like Terminator 1 better than Terminator 2. Uh, you know, I love Terminator, but Terminator 2, I think, is a better movie. Um, I'll be back. All right, all right. Let's get back to uh, Quantico. So uh, we open with uh, Kemper, Ed Kemper, our dearly beloved Ed Kemper from earlier in the show, writes a letter to Holden uh, asking in pretty strong terms for another visit. And apparently there's been a series of cards and letters and they sort of, they show them on piling up on Holden's desk. Essentially, apparently he's been getting frequent uh, written correspondence from Ed Kemper. Um, you know, think it's sort of feeling like uh, they're compadres. And, and Kemper's letter is, it's got a lot of emotional heft to it. Like he misses Holden. Like you can tell that, to the extent that Kemper can have a friend, he thinks Holden is his friend. And he, more importantly, he feels Holden is his friend. Yeah, I think, you know, I'm sure Kemper doesn't get a lot of um, intellectual stimulation. And, and I think probably talking about other serial killers and trying to 
teach Holden about what it was like to be in his shoes and maybe what it's like to be, to walk in the shoes of another serial killer was probably extremely interesting for him. And I'm sure he misses it. And he likes being the center of attention, right? He probably thinks about this stuff a lot and it's nice that somebody wants to listen and record him. You know, it's very validating for Kemper. Right. He gets to be, an expert in something and not just um, a sort of uh, condemned, miserable curiosity. Yeah, no, that's true. And then while the, while all this is happening, while Holden is contemplating the letter, uh, they get a phone call from Atlanta that uh, Devier, the, uh, the tree trimmer who they are concerned uh, may have murdered the young majorette. Uh, they, he was polygraphed and the results were inconclusive. Right. Which is sort of defaulting to him passing, even, you know, essentially it means that, um, they can't use it against them. And basically, uh, Ford, or I actually, I think it's Bill sort of says like, why did you polygraph him? You shouldn't have done that. And Bill was opposed to polygraphing him in the first place, actually. Right. Bill says it can't really because you're rolling the dice and it, it people, I guess, juries and probably even judges and prosecutors, maybe. I think there's a sort of a the way he uh, frames it is that there, there's a lot of misunderstanding about them. So Bill and Holden get on a plane and they fly back to Atlanta. I love, by the way, that when they land in Atlanta and they meet the local law enforcement, uh, there's an Eastern Airline desk behind them. Remember Eastern Airline? Yeah. No, the you know planes. who was CEO or chairman of Eastern Airline when this Frank, happened, when this takes Frank place? Frank Borman. Yeah, our Apollo 8 uh, mission commander, as discussed over at our From the Earth to the Moon podcast. Right. The um, not always charming Frank Borman, by the way, ends up being a CEO. <laughs> no. Um, so... As Holden and Bill head back to the police station in Atlanta to question Debbie, they start uh, spinning their wheels and formulating a plan, right? They want Debbie to sit there a long time. They want him to wait and maybe get a little agitated. Uh, Holden engages in the little state sorry stagecraft like he gives a a policeman some empty manila folders and he says i want you to fill these out and make them look like the manhattan yellow pages like we've got reams of information on this guy right and put all the information all the evidence from the evidence locker on the back table right including her uh her major outfit and most importantly the Rock. The Rock. The chapter in uh, the Mind Hunter book on this is is titled "Everyone Has a Rock." By the way, hmm. um, so they get uh, they get him into a room and uh, they kind of acknowledge that you know he probably is confident now because he has essentially beaten the polygraph. Um, right. And they they start off with some fairly friendly questioning um and holden's really sort of the architect of what's going on i mean he is the one that directs them how to stage the scene and he is the one that is driving the interview so it's really kind of where holden 
takes the reins and where he's sort of done that before. And I think it comes into play at the end of the episode and the beginning of season two, sort of demonstrating where, where Holden is in some ways sort of the most, he's the sort of the architect or sort of the most creative member of the team in some ways. Yeah. I think in a lot of ways, and you know, he's, you know, he's also, I think he's the youngest, he's the sort of the most mentally flexible and he's willing to risk more, you know, both in good and bad ways as we have seen and will continue to see. Uh, you know, it's important that in this interrogation scene is not just Bill and Holden and Debbie A, but also the local cop who right. is not so comfortable with all this methodology. And For example, when the friendly questioning starts to get more intense, less friendly, and maybe into some areas that are of a questionable morality, Holden, right. uh, quote-unquote, flips the tape, uh, but he pauses the machine when he engages in some lying or some manipulation of Devier, and the local cop sees this. Right, but when he really gets uncomfortable and Holden starts talking about how sexually attractive a 14-year-old girl is um, and, and really trying to elicit sympathy or seem sympathetic to um the the uh, the murderer well and this is this is an very much analogous to the way that he tried to ingratiate himself with richard speck uh by uttering the the famous phrase that gets him in trouble um and this is this behavior is just it's right along those lines and he's smart enough now to pause the tape <laughs> at least he picked up something along right. the way and he, he gets devier to say that she looked older than 12 yeah. uh, acknowledging that 14 is the age of consent right he also um, didn't bring agent smith along which was a <laughs> good yeah, move. Was, then he's really learned something <laughs> but again you know he 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 gets he gets pretty down into it like holden talks about a quote-unquote hair on her pussy Right, yeah. and he—I don't know if you noticed—he mimics a southern accent. Yeah. Um, he gets he gets Devier to admit that they talked, that he thought that she was pretty. Like he's he's really working him, and Bill doesn't say a ton in this scene. No, but Bill also, by not interrupting, is supportive. Whereas the, I think, obviously, the local cop gets freaked out and even it sort of brings the record to a screeching halt. <laughs> he sort of stops the interview at a point where Holden just kind of seems to be getting a little traction with the guy just because he's uncomfortable, um, which sheds a light on the fact that they're, they're the behavioral science unit is learning something. And maybe it's because Holden tends to go out on a limb, but he's gotten somewhere and it's still way ahead of what most uh, people in law enforcement find acceptable. And when they go out into the hall, right, when the, he asks for a break and they go out into the hall, there's open discussion of the fact that the tape is being paused. Right. Like Holden's not even hiding it, although he does say to the Atlanta cop that he takes full responsibility for what happens in there. Right. Sort of relieving, at least relieving the local cops of some worries about getting into trouble. 
Which is meaningless because essentially there's no record of it. Right, so exactly. Protecting himself and he's also placating the local cops. So he really has learned. Um, yeah, no, for sure. For sure. And again, you know, this is supposed to be a year or two down the road, I think. Um, and again, you know, Holden makes multiple references to the little girl's genitals, right? In a sort of uh, engaging sort of wink, wink, nudge, nudge way. And Devier goes for it. Yeah. Um, and then at the, the moment of the big reveal, uh, they unveil the rock. Right, the rock used to bludgeon this poor child to death. Yeah, right. So the the evidence table that's sort of set up behind them is is partially obscure, kind of covered with a cloth. And when Holden reveals it, Holden realizes that Devier is focusing on the rock, on the murder weapon. And then you know this is kind of where Bill chimes in, and they they acknowledge in front of Devier that Lisa's skull was crushed. And then Bill talks about, you know, how hard it would be for the victim, the victim's blood not to get on the murderer. And Bill says, I'd be amazed if you didn't get any on you. Yeah. Right. And, and so Bill and Holden are on the same page as things progress. So it's, they're illustrating how they're, you know, again, how their proficiency is increasing in dealing with these crimes. Right. And and they really ratchet up the pressure. Like at one point, I forget if it's Bill or Holden, but one of them says to him, the question for us isn't, did you do it? We know that you did it. Yeah. You know, which there's no way they would have done that, you know, a year ago. And then essentially the guy crumbles. Holden says, all you have to do is tell us if we're right. And the local cop nods at him and he realizes he's had Devier. Yeah. Um, and then we cut to the bar, right? Yeah. So Holden and the local uh, police brass and the, the cops are at the local bar and Holden makes a big mistake. They're all drinking, right? They're celebrating. So right, they're, yeah, celebrating they're definitely their, celebrating. And it's clearly yeah. a cop bar. Like there's not just them there. There's other cops in the background. Like this is implied that this is the bar where the cops go after work. Right. And, and Holden's, you know, he's, he's got a couple drinks and he's, he's got sort of a, a bit of a sycophantic local cop who is clearly amazed at what at the things he's done. And it is very encouraging Holden talking about the fact that he's met serial killers and what they're doing and what they're meet, what they're who they've met and what their methods are. And Holden talks about things. Um, and at the time it seems perfectly fine. It seems like they're all on the same page and they're talking and it's just a social occasion among you know, people who have shared um, an experience and they're celebrating. Right. Like-minded folk. Right. right. But, but Holden gets a little cocky. He drops some killer's names, right? Implies that he knows a bunch of serial killers, maybe more yeah. than he does. Um, which, you know, it's all well and good. He doesn't seem like he's going too far, really. He just seems. I don't know. Like, Bill, 
I don't think that's true. I think Bill realizes he's kind of laying it on thick and Bill cuts it off. Like Bill, Bill sort of jumps in and tries to wrap up the whole conversation uh, by sort of raising his glass uh, just yeah. to sort of move on with the whole thing. So I, I think Bill is, uh, he's not so enamored of essentially this bragging. Yeah, I guess um, Bill also is is very aware of what what the lines are with the local cops because he was doing the road show for so long and he's very familiar with interacting with them. Um, and I think that that depth of experience that he had applies to this, even though obviously this is a pretty appropriate celebration in some ways. Right. We We then... Cut from Holden bragging in the bar to Holden bragging to Debbie, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's a nicely done transition. All of a sudden, we're in the supermarket watching the two of them on the cart cam. The camera's mounted <laughs> on the front of the, the shopping cart as they walk through the supermarket. And, and he's essentially, you know, telling Debbie a, a version of what he told the cops about how great it was and how they were able to get him uh, where they wanted him psychologically. And she's, she's not so enamored. You know, she voices a lot of skepticism about his methods. And uh, for the 43rd time this season, <laughs> they bicker. Yeah. Right. And then Holden, you know, look, I've been the first to say that sometimes Debbie's wrong or is kind of a bitch to him, but he's kind of a dick to her. Like he says, could you just be my girlfriend? Meaning just like, shut up and listen and tell me how wonderful I am is what he's kind of saying to her. But on the other hand, this was a legitimate victory. And he basically, it looks like he just got off the plane and he's kind of telling her what happened and he's happy. But he she doesn't like, like, she doesn't like his methods and she's not so sure it's all so cool. And, yeah. and he, I mean, but she also is a little bit sick of him, right? Like, clearly, they're they're having relationship problems. And they've already broken up once at this point, right? Right. right. They're, like they're they, had their, they had their reconciliation at the laundromat, right? And it's not the greatest reconciliation, considering the intensity of the fact that he walked in while she was in a sort of right, uncomfortable, compromising situation with Patrick, but. Um, and part of it, too, is, you know, I think, you know, this is a show populated by strong personalities and she's a really, really strong personality. And, you know, like it's hard for the two of them. Right. They're they're both used to being sort of smart, dominant people in their environments. Yeah. So and then we cut to back the next morning to Quantico. And they have uh, gotten an article written about them in the paper. The cop that they were talking to at the bar essentially blabbed to a reporter. Right. So the, the Atlanta Constitution picks it up and they publish like a big feature piece on it. And uh, Wendy and Bill do not like it at all. Um, and Holden, uh, in sort of a heavy handed attempt to calm Bill down, acknowledges that Bill wasn't even mentioned in the article, which is kind of a dick move. <laughs> yeah, that was. <laughs> that was. Because it doesn't seem like Bill has never given any appearance of being a glory hound. You know, if there's one thing Bill is not, <laughs> it's a glory hound. 
like Bill could care less if he's ever mentioned in the article. Right. But, but Wendy's not happy, right? She wants to go to Atlanta, right? She wants to go um, and basically see if she can make this right, because she doesn't think that this is such a good thing. Um, And then she goes ahead and just sort of on her own, uh, she goes out and she books a flight, right? And then Bill says, you go with her to hold him. Right. Right. And, and her concern. Bill's like, I ain't going. (laughs) Right. You know, but her concern is that, um, they're going to go for the death penalty on this guy. Word's going to get out now that the paper, now that it's been in the press that the FBI has come in and has a special unit dealing with, uh, unusual crimes and that, it's words going to get out because of the news story and that no one will ever no no one in prison or convicted or, uh, you know, in the process, in the legal process will ever speak to them because they think they're just that the FBI is just going to send them to the electric chair. So so they get down to Atlanta and there's a fantastic scene where Bill and Wendy talk to the D.A., this Mayweather woman. Um, and they launch into a pretty impassioned plea, just like you were saying, you know, why all the reasons why the death penalty is not going to be the best thing for, for them and the program and everything they're trying to do. And she will have none of it. Yeah. She's just not buying what Wendy is selling. She has legit reasons. Um, Yeah, no, I I actually, I have to confess, I kind of agreed with the DA. Like, you could see her point. You know, her goal, right, is, you know, she says, like, she's an elected official, right? This isn't her fault. She's not the one who got you in the news. She tells him to stay out of the news. But she basically says, you know, in Atlanta, they're going to push for the death penalty. And she shuts them down pretty hard and fast. Right. I mean, because in, in their, uh, in her purview, this is a death penalty case, right? And Wendy crosses over from basically saying, listen, can you do us a favor? Because this is going to hinder our work and our work is just starting. And this is one of our early victories, but we're trying to make something that's going to benefit people across the country and is maybe going to eventually prevent some of these crimes from happening. And she crosses over from that, which is sort of a, a very noble and relatively defensible and legitimate uh, concern to sort of almost a political discussion about whether they should execute this guy or not. And whether you think that or not, it's hard to cross it. Like that's a big leap. And Mayweather, her exact words are, Sorry, her exact words are, she says, uh, I'm an elected official here in Georgia. Death is the will of the people. Right. And right, the DA realizes that she's made that jump and calls her on it and says, like, I'm not here to, you know, soothe your conscience. And I'm not here, you know, if you, you should have stayed out of the news. Like, this is what, this is a capital case here. But, and, you know, it, it reminds me of the cop in Altoona in the sense that, you know, this is obviously a smaller part than the cop in Altoona, but the woman who plays this DA, and I don't know her name, 
you know, she's on screen for about three minutes. But yeah, she does great. a fantastic job and she really puts Bill and Holden in their place. Like she essentially says, you can come down here and say whatever you want, but this is my show and I'm right, doing Wendy. what I want. Yeah. yeah. Wendy and it's Holden. a great bit. I, I, we should look up who played her, but that woman did an amazing job. And yep. then uh, it cuts to, to Wendy uh, and Bill in the elevator, just looking like they have been squashed. Went, sorry, Wendy and Holden in the elevator. Wendy, by yeah. the way, she's really good at sort of like curling her upper lip and looking revolted. <laughs> now, that's kind of like one of her go-to faces in this show. And right. like she's, she's pissed at Holden. She's pissed at the DA. She thought that she would be listened to or taken more seriously. Like she feels like she's invested all of this time um, and she didn't, you know, get taken seriously at all she's pissed it's a, yep. it's I, it's an interesting scene and it takes place in the elevator with other people so again sort of like the bird in richard speck's hand or debbie in the hallway uh when the 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 principal come the principal's wife comes to visit you know the there's two other people in this elevator with them when they're having this conversation and those two other people are used as a device to add tension. Like they're stuck in this elevator and they're forced to listen to Wendy and Holden argue. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, it's Wendy. really good. You know, like it's, it doesn't cost much and it looks good on camera. And it really adds a lot to ratchet up the scene. Like that scene is totally different if it's the two of them in the elevator than if it's the four of them in the elevator. Yeah, and and one of the things, you know, that is something that this series does over and over again. It sort of presents these real-life vignettes that have tremendous impact. And also, as you just said, and I, I think was spot on, is that, you know, they get these great character actors in. They'll have a role that has, you know, maybe two two-minute scenes or one two-minute scene, like in this case with the DA in Georgia. Uh, and And... They are, the characters are so well-written. They are rational, defensive. You can see both sides. And it's, it's, not, a, it's not a show where there's a sort of, a, you know, a comic book cardboard villain and there's a cardboard hero uh, and uh, everything is clear, right? They present the problem in a way that, is interesting to see from from a, an eagle's eye, you know, view. Right, and they, you know, like they're they contrast different points of view. And for example, like there's lot not everybody agrees on everything. And you know, just minutes after we had the scene of the sycophantic cops, right? You know, lapping up, holding at the bar. You know, just a few minutes later, right another member of the Atlanta law enforcement community takes a giant shit on him. <laughs> you know, and you kind of don't see right. it coming. Like, like, I remember when I was watching this, I thought that they were going to be successful with the DA and they were not. Right. And um, Wendy, Wendy sort of is makes sort of strategic errors in the conversation. You know, it's just, it's, it's imperfect to say the least. Um, well, and, and I think too, like, you know, Wendy maybe doesn't realize that her hyper-educated New Englander, you know, East Coaster shtick doesn't play as well in Atlanta, you know? 
Well, right. And it's like, it's not just the regional difference. It's just the fact that, you know, that there are politics and there's electability and there are right local, um, you know, differences involved. Um, and then just to make matters worse, <laughs> I'm telling you, like we're on the downward trajectory here. Uh, we cut to Holden back in Quantico after flying home. And he uh, he jauntily uh, pulls up in front of Debbie's house and hops up the stairs to her front door. And she is sitting out there waiting for him with a glass of wine in her hand. Hmm. Um, and uh, she is cold as ice. Uh, she doesn't want to go to dinner. She's very distant. Um, and Holden kind of correctly reads that, you know, they're basically breaking up right here. Like they, they bicker for a brief moment. And then he essentially at her invitation invites him to quote unquote, read her. Uh, and then he points out all the ways that her, uh, dialogue and body language uh, is uninviting to say the least, right? She, he doesn't right. get invited inside. She's sitting with her arms crossed, um, doesn't offer him a glass, right? She's right. in he a bad mood. Right, like 10 things that he says. He, he basically does turn on work mode in an extremely proficient way and, and comes and to the hostile way. Right. But, you know, I mean, it's not inappropriate entirely. Uh, she, that's what she wants. She, I think she wants it so that Holden can prove to himself what's happening. Like maybe he won't be able to see it for what it is until he kind of looks at it through his forensic lens. Well, she doesn't want to pull the trigger either. I think like she wants to break up, but she's, you know, the, there are mixed feelings and maybe she, she doesn't want to sort of finish, um, finish the process. Whereas, so she, she basically, you know, enlists his help to do it also right and then at the end of this analysis he he realizes that you know they're breaking up and when he says that debbie says is that what i'm doing when it's clear that that's what she's doing and then he says let's not drag this out i'll pick up my stuff next week and in 10 seconds flat he's off the porch and in his car right Without a backwards glance well, he's pissed, but he's also, he realizes what's going on. And, and again, you know, he's, you know, this has not been a smooth relationship. They've had, they had early ups and a lot of downs afterwards. So you could, you know, you could see he's probably got a lot of pent up frustration that now has nowhere to go. Right. And, um, and it's, it's, it's hard to know who's right and who's wrong. Like they're they're an interesting couple. Like they're a, they're kind of a tough they're a tough pairing. Yeah. Um, and we then cut back to the next day and more shots of Holden alone. This is not the first time in season one that we've had all these shots of Holden alone, uh, walking by himself, uh, or shots where he's walking through the hall and no one else is responding to him, and he's clearly lost in his thoughts like he's barely aware of his surroundings and he's just sort of like he's you know he's uh, in a fog as he realizes his relationship with debbie is over yeah um and then he gets down to his desk in the basement and there's a telephone message for him 
Yeah, it's from California, the hospital, and uh, you know Ed Kemper apparently tried to kill himself, and he left Holden as a uh, like a healthcare proxy. Right, and I, I kind of got the impression that the the hospital is in the prison. Like, I don't think it's a regular hospital. I think that it's a prison hospital. Right, or it's a prison ward in a hospital, something yeah, like that. Yeah, or something. It's yeah. not a regular hospital. They say California right. Medical Facility when Holden calls. Right. Uh, and he finds out, like you said, that Kemper has had a suicide attempt. Yeah. Um, and he's very, very upset about this, Holden. Yeah. Um. And he's, you know, he's not quite sure what to do. Uh, and then while he's processing the breakup with Debbie, Ed's suicide attempt uh, is then revealed to them by Shepard that OPR has the tape. Right. So Agent Smith's uh, little postal gift that <laughs> that he shipped over to the right the office of professional responsibility for the feds has been received and processed and now they're now the shit's hitting the fan yeah and and, and you know the guy who plays shepherd you know another he's got a medium part in the show he does great you know and he yeah. basically is like well look they got us they got us so he says, let's go forward with total transparency, uh, see if we can get through this. And Holden essentially uh, takes the fall in their meetings with OPR. And Holden in their meetings with OPR is pissed. Like he even throws the quote unquote shit stain comment back at the guy from OPR, meaning, you know, he says to the guy, look, you know, when the, your tape recorder was off, you didn't hesitate to call Richard Speck a shit stain. Right, but and you're, if, and the, you're and coming down on the, me for right. for making similar type of commentary. And he's right because the guy immediately turns off the tape recorder. Yeah, he's a hundred percent right, and he's he's caught the guy being a complete hypocrite. Right, and then he basically tells him to screw off and walks out. And they warn him that he's going to be, you know, he's going to be professionally. Um, discipline Burned, for doing right. that he's gonna get screwed and yeah, he's so pissed it's a great it's a great scene right he says fuck this and he gets yeah. up and to walk out and they say you're making a mistake and then he says the only mistake i made was ever doubting myself yeah and he walks right out the door leaving the whole the whole opr mess completely unresolved and the implication is that if anyone goes down for this, it's going to be Holden. Right. He's going to be correct and, and take the fall at the same time. Right. And, and, and then he flies out to, to go see Kemper. Yeah. And it's kind of like, you're almost wondering, is he quitting at this point? You know, because he pays for his ticket himself. Like, you know, we see them throughout the show booking plane tickets. Like even earlier in this episode, we see Wendy booking plane tickets, but this one, you don't get the sense that the FBI paid for. You get the sense that he went to the airport and bought the ticket by himself. Right. Which is sort of borne out later because they're not sure where he is. And then he flies out to uh, Sacramento, uh, Vacaville, I think, is where uh, Kemper is. And he walks through this prison hospital or hospital ward, whatever it is. And there is Kemper with a fresh set of sutures in his left arm uh, where he uh, 
cut himself open. So he says, he says somebody left him something by mistake, like a pan or a stapler or something. Right. And he gets his hand on a metal object and he's, he uses it to cut himself open. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when he gets there, it's an, you know, uh, Ed has no idea what a mess Holden is, but he's so proud and happy that he came. Yeah. Uh, and, and, uh, and Kemper says, I tried less dramatic methods to get you here. Right, it didn't work. Um, you, didn't you didn't answer my letters and right, cards. Right. So his, I, his love so letters. I slashed myself. Uh, and then Kemper sees, he acknowledges that he read the article yeah. in the paper in the Atlanta Constitution uh, that had been picked up by the AP Wire Services. Um, and he, he says that you said that we were friends in the article. Yeah. Um, you know, not a lot of people walk around saying that they're friends with Ed Kemper. And he pushes Holden on it. He says, are we friends? And Holden kind of, kind of ices him a little bit. He says in the context of our work together, sure. Which is not a very satisfying answer if you're Ed Kemper. I think Holden, this is news to him that it was picked up by the AP and went on the news wires. So I think to Holden this is a disturbing new piece of information. And I think he's a little stunned. And then when Kemper's sort of pressing him on this, he's a little annoyed about the whole thing. And he doesn't give the greatest answer <laughs> to Ed Kemper. Well, and, and you know, like Ed Kemper's kind of talking about like our work together. Right. Uh, yeah. And then he does he tells Holden he doesn't like the fact that you're talking about me when I'm not there and you're using it to puff yourself up. Um, and this whole thing is happening. Well, uh, we should point out Ed is chained to the bed. Sort of. Well, he's yeah. chained by his feet. So, you know, there's more of a sense that Ed is more restrained than he actually turns out to be <laughs> oh, <laughs> in yeah. about 10 seconds. He's got right? some slack. <laughs> Uh, Holden tells Ed that he considers him an organized killer, uh, which uh, Ed likes a lot. <laughs> like He likes that term. He gets a kind of a big grin out of Ed Kemper uh, when he tells him he considers him an organized killer. Uh, and then we kind of get to the emotional uh, capstone of the episode is Ed notices that the orderly or whoever is on the one-to-one -one watch. Yeah. The nurse or something who's like on the other side of the glass for right. the, from the, the ward that, right. or like right, right across from, from Kemper's bed. Right. But that guy gets up and walks out of the room and all yeah. of a sudden for the very first time, Holden and Ed are truly alone. Right. Which so, is a very, very, and, and, and Holden does not know this because the, orderly is behind Holden and Holden didn't see him leave. Right. Right. And they show you, right. You have the, uh, via the editing, they show you what happens. And then basically Ed Kemper gets up and it turns out that he's got about, you know, six or eight feet of chain outside of the bed. So right, he, but, he has a radius, but hold on one second, but something important happens before he gets up, right before he gets up, He's talking about his right before he really moves on Holden. He basically says that he could have never been with the girls he was with if they were alive. And he says mm. that he calls them his spirit wives. And he says, like, even cats didn't like him when he was a kid. 
Right. And but the fact that he killed them right right there with him forever. Right. And and the minute like he's he's inching towards the edge of the bed, he goes from lying down to sitting. Like he's so big, he's deforming the end of the, the mattress. And the yeah. second the orderly is officially out of sight, Ed is on his feet and he physically blocks the way. He stands between Holden and the door. And he right. stands up to his full height and he towers over Holden. Right. He sort of like more or less boxes him in. And, you know, he says, he says, I'm like, I could kill you right now. You know, I could choke you to death instantly. And then you could become, then you'd stay with me forever. Like my spirit wives. <laughs> ay, ay, ay. And the whole thing is largely done. Uh, with a, with one medium shot showing the two of them standing up, and it emphasizes Kemper's both his size and his height for a few seconds before it cuts back to some medium close-ups of the the two of them. Um, yeah, and it fools you that you know, as like you said, you think that he can't get out of the bed very far, but he's he's got about six or eight feet. Right, and he moves fast. Like, all of a sudden, before Holden knows what's going on, he's in a real crisis. And Holden stands up, and Holden looks scared. Like, there's no other way to say it. Like, he's an FBI agent, and he's tough, and he is scared because he's now face-to-face with the real Ed Kemper, and there's no one to back him up. And Ed Kemper just more or less directly threatened to kill him. Uh, And... uh, clearly is pissed and he's clearly deliberately manipulating him. Plus Holden wasn't really paying that much attention. Holden was upset. Holden came in upset for many reasons. Holden is thinking about the AP newswire story and he's not at his best. And all of a sudden, no, he's far from his best. And then all of a sudden, (laughs) his life's in danger in that second. And everything kind of comes to roost in that second. Like, he goes from being, from having this victory in Georgia, right? Where his methods, he was able to, again, use what he learned to get a conviction. Right, and made up. You know, it's not just what he learned, it's what he thought of. Right, right. He, it's, it's completely validating to, you know, all the things he's been working for, right? And he goes from that to basically getting investigated, his girlfriend dumping him, and now Ed Kemper's going to choke him out and kill him <laughs> all within like a day. <laughs> and then he says, Kemper says to him, why are you here? And he says, I don't know. And he's trembling at this point. Like he's visibly shaking. Right. And Ed sees how, how terrified and miserable he is. And not just because, because he's scared. It's also because in that moment, I think he has an awareness of how things have gone downhill in the last 24 hours, basically. <laughs> yeah. And where and then, he is. And then Ed puts his enormous paw... <laughs> like a bear on Holden's shoulder and pulls him in for a wraparound hug, which Holden breaks out of and bolts from the room. Right. And so Ed almost goes from threatening to kill him to kind of trying to be supportive at the same time as being terrifying. 
it's kind of this mixed moment, but I think there is a, a little bit of a turning point. Like I think Kemper, as far as Kemper has some sort of empathy that comes back in that second, because I think he realizes that Holden doesn't really know why he's there. And I think it sort of lends some legitimacy to his visit. Like he's not just trying to manipulate him. He's not trying right. to manipulate he's, And Kemper. he's curious to see how Ed is. And even he doesn't really understand his relationship with Ed. Right. Um, so it's not purely manipulative. And, so, and I think Ed realizes that. So Holden breaks from the room and he makes it about 40 feet down the hall before he's on the floor. Yeah. Hyperventilating. Uh, unable to breathe. Right. Um, and, uh, you know, the nurse comes over to him who doesn't really recognize that he's having a panic attack. Uh, and then the last we see of Holden in season one as uh, he is crawl, he's curled up on the floor, hyperventilating in the fetal position, uh, and we hear uh, some of the voices, uh, you know, in Holden's mind, uh, mostly Shepard and other people talking about how he's wrecking his career and he's just hurting himself. Um, right. And then it fades to black, and I think everybody thinks this is the end of the episode, and there is there is a bumper at the end of the show. And we cut to none other than our friend Dennis Rader. In Kansas, right. And at the beginning of this episode did not start with, with Rader. Right. With the with the the killer uh, that, that's started, I think, most of the um episodes. And what is Rader doing? He's yeah, burning he's, evidence. Yeah. Right. He is one at a time. He is uh, standing in his yard in front of a 40 gallon drum that he has lit a fire in. And he is destroying uh, drawings that he's obviously made of naked, bound women. Right. And, and, and just to sort of like always bring it back to the fact that, you know, like Kemper said, Kemper gets the line of the season, right? He says, there's a lot more like me. Yep. Right. That's the theme of season one in a lot of ways. Um, and, you know, he's right. And, and, and Dennis Rader is still out there despite his failed, uh, uh, you know, I think, in, I think it's in episode nine where he's lying in wait for the woman who never shows up and gets pissed off. Like they don't know anything about Rader, but he's, he's out and he's functioning at this point. Yep. So and that's and the, the end of the season. Right. End of the episode, end of the season, uh, right there. And then we cut to the credits. It's a very strong episode. Yeah, it's a really good one. And a lot happens. If all the goes Fincher from episodes highs to are lows. fantastic. Yeah. I mean, it really, this episode goes from a massive victory, uh, for especially for Holden, to his absolute low point. Mm -hmm. for like everyone's low point immediately the yeah. whole behavioral science units on a finishes on a low point like they don't know what's going to happen to them right, right. holden's run off to california without telling anybody no one knows where, where he is right yeah. where he got he got bitch slapped by the reality of who ed kemper really is right he almost got murdered right and uh and and ed kemper sorry and dennis Rader is completely uh unknown to law enforcement yep. right essentially doing whatever he wants at this point yeah it's a great great finish to the show 
you know, we'll we'll talk uh, next time about season two, episode one. But what's interesting is that you know the, there's a two year gap, like we talked about. But in the in the world of Mindhunter, there's no gap. The next episode picks up immediately where this left off. Yeah, it's like a day later. Right, but some shows, you know, they would have jumped forward in time as well with the viewer, right, and picked it up two years later, but not here. Yeah. Um, the guy, by the way, who plays uh, Devier and uh, Devier Devier in Atlanta also does a great job. I mean, they, you know, whoever the casting uh, director is, does just a great job. Like, there's no missteps in the cast of this thing. Yeah, there's, there's, yeah, it's a hundred percent terrific. The performances um, and the writing, you know, the the dialogue, all their, all the the you know, guest actors and all the characters that have a couple minute scenes. It's, it's always solid. It's like law. It's like, you know, kind of like law and order to the 10th power, you know, uh, law and order has a certain style, right. But, but it's still, bunk, bunk. <laughs> it's, it's always, it's known as having sort of good guest appearances. Right. But this show, I mean, Boy, the, all the little characters, like we talked about the DAs, for example, um, the, the family members of the murderers, the, 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 the cops that they meet once and help out or meet a handful of times. Everybody is such a well-written um, character who has great dialogue. And, and it, 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 the show, I, I think, you know, in some, to me, like uh, the show was great to watch a second time later on yeah this is my second time going through it too you know it's a police procedural that doesn't really follow the rules of police procedural shows you know like there's no scene in the show of them you know racing down the road and with you know bill reaching up to put the the siren on the roof you know what i mean as they're booming down the street in their ford falcon or whatever like it's not that kind of show like it's all talking and thinking and there's no, and you know that CSI is my favorite show, right? So this is certainly <laughs> there's no CSI moments. <laughs> um, and I think the woman who plays Debbie is great. You know, I yeah. mean, she's really, really interesting. That's Hannah Gross. You know, and 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 you know, I think one of the neat things about this show is they're okay to have people be unpleasant. Like Wendy is unpleasant. You know, Hannah is unpleasant. I mean, sorry, Debbie played by Hannah. You know, she's difficult. Like, Bill is a difficult partner. Like, we get to know Bill and we like him, but, you know, Bill's tough. You know, yeah. he's a tough guy to be around. You know, he has no tolerance for bullshit or anything, you know? Yep. Um, yeah, it's just, it's a really, really well done show. I won't lie to you. I, I assumed it was dead in the water. Like, when a year passed yeah. and this show did not come back, I thought, well, that's that. And I was glad we had the season we had. Yeah. Uh, so I was very, very happy when it came on. I don't know if they made an announcement on if there'll be more than two seasons, but I, I hope so. I told you Fincher said he wants five, but wanting and getting are two different things. Yeah. Uh, should we wrap there? Yep. We'll come back. We'll talk about season two and talk about what we know about the hiatus. Right. Exactly. All right. We'll see you guys all for uh, Mindhunter Companion season two.